Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. We're very, very fortunate today to have a special guest star with us. And uh, let's start off with some introductions. Um, let's start with uh, those of us that are not stars. I'm Kent <laughs> Roundy. I'm a psychiatrist here at the Utah State Hospital. I'm Gio. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. I'm Stephen. I'm a third-year medical student as well. And um, the person who brought us the star today. <laughs> Hi, I'm Valentina. I'm also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista. And today we have a special guest, which is my mother, <laughs> also known as um, Dr. Patrizia Casaccia. She's the director of the neuroscience initiative at the Advanced Science Research Center at the City University of New York. And she has a lot of cool things to talk to us about today. Wow. So, so you came to me, Valentina, talking about disruptions in white matter. Yes. And um, you said, we even hinted at this last week with kyrene, ky ky <laughs> kynuric acid. <laughs> kynuric acid. And uh, your mom and you and your mother started talking about this and the lights went off. And now we have this really cool discussion ahead of us. Yeah. And so, so what we're going to do, and we have your mother, Dr. Casacha, Casacha uh, <laughs> here with us via... Um, Zoom. So hopefully this format works out. And if there's uh, some sound difficulties, we apologize in advance because we're this is a learning podcast for all of us. Uh, Dr. Casacha, you sent a couple of articles that introduced us to some pretty interesting ideas about myelination and how myelination might be affected in the body. Would you mind starting off just talking to us about myelination in the brain and teaching us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I think that one of the easiest way to think of myelination is that uh, we can follow, even if you have um, a child, a brother, a sister, a son, a, a nephew, you can see how the child starts developing, right? Starts walking, uh, interacting. And these critical milestones of a child development are related not to development of new neuronal network, but rather to my myelin forming around those neurons, allowing for synaptic uh, connection. So this allows to perceive a little bit of the importance of those uh, myelinated pathways throughout development. And so depending on which myelinated tract become uh, um, more functional, the child starts to, um, to crawl first and then to walk and so on and so forth. Now, from, uh, um, if, if we think in terms of psychological development, uh, there is also a progressive ability of uh, sensing fear, right? You, you may be a little bit more willing to take risks when you are young than as you age. And in part is related to the connection between the amygdala which allow us to perceive fear, and the prefrontal cortex, which is then responsible for regulating behaviors. And our ability also to socially interact is mostly related to pathways that are related to myelination in the prefrontal cortex. So overall, the interesting part about myelination is that though not only occurs in early development, but is protracted. And this is encouraging because as uh, um, more and more studies have been done, it has been shown, for instance, that juggling jugglers, uh, student jugglers, would have uh, an, uh, an enhanced myelination of specific tracts that are related uh, to, to motor functions. Or similarly, if you think of 
um, hippocampal tract in uh, um, taxi drivers. Also, the myelination on this uh, white matter tract would be related prior to the navigation system, clearly. <laughs> Perhaps now we should do a second study. And, um, and so these are just some ideas. And, and so right now, there have been a lot of uh, considerations, also piano players, right? Piano player, there has been a very interesting performance, uh, there a very interesting study regarding the capability of piano player to perform and how the myelination of the tracks varies and the speed of uh, the ability of playing the piano varies if someone learned piano as a child or as an adult. The earlier you learn, the more complex can be your performance and this can be correlated to myelination of white matter tracts. Yeah, and the so, same is shown with, with mice, right? That if yeah. you try to teach a mouse how to run on a complex running wheel, and if you inhibit new myelin formation in mice, they can't learn how to run on this wheel. But instead, if you allow them to form new myelin, they form a lot more, especially in the corpus callosum, right? Yes, and in the uh, motor cortex. So depending on the stimulus that you allow, you're going to have myelin in that specific region. So, and this is interesting because then we know that uh, we, we follow the different regions as they develop, but then in the adult, you only have few regions that appear to, to have this myelination that is still uh, uh, possible. And among those regions, one is the motor cortex, but there are also centers related to language or uh, centers related to, um, to, to different type of, um, of skills, right? For instance, social skills, etc. Holy cow. So, so let me just, <laughs> first of all, this is amazing. Yeah. This is so cool. And, and I wish that we had a setup here that allowed you to see the looks on all of the students' faces <laughs> as you're talking to us, because we're just all like goo goo eyes. We're enjoying this so much. Now, it does bring up a couple of questions. So, myelination can be disrupted at any way along the pathway. I, I suspect that there are examples of overmyelination, perhaps, and undermyelination. What, what happens when myelination is either too great or too little? Okay, so I think that uh, we have to think of what is the function of myelin. First of all, there are two important um, myths that we need to discredit. <laughs> One is that uh, myelinating oligodendrocytes do more than just wrapping, allowing for faster synaptic uh, conduct, uh, for faster conduction of the action potential. The second, I think, big myth that's written in several textbooks is that uh, axonal tracts can either be myelinated or non-myelinated. This is still taught nowadays, and it is wrong. It is wrong because we now know that uh, uh, axonal tracts are not continuously myelinated, but they present important gaps that allow for plasticity to occur. So these are two important concepts, not only speed of conduction, but also the ability of myelinating tracts that are not myelinated during development. So initially we thought those milestones correlate with the total myelination of all the tracks, and that's not the case. So there were important papers by the group of Paula Arlotta that then they've been conducted by, at Harvard and they've been repeated by several others that 
if you follow sequentially the, using serial electron microscopy, you would see that individual axonal tracts are not uh, com completely myelinated. Mm -hmm. So based on that, one, you can think what we we're saying before, that, okay, if now let's say that you are a child and a child is starting how to, to walk and you have a problem with, uh, you have a genetic disorder, for instance, adrenal leukodystrophy very early on, you may have motor problems, right? For instance, or you might have problems related to metabolic control of uh, the differentiation process in a specific areas such as the prefrontal cortex and you might have alteration in uh, uh, social behavior, such as is detected in children with autism. So um, interestingly, there was a very interesting study that was conducted a long time ago when families in the UK had adopted children from Romania. And these Romanian abductees were brought to the UK and they did the number of, and, and they noticed that these children were not adjusting well to the social environment in the UK. And when they did the, this uh, um, study, they realized that they had alterations of myelinations in the corpus callosum and in the prefrontal cortex. So all of those are ideas of how it does impact social behavior, such as in autism or, or in this case, and as well as multiple kind of functions. This is from a, let's say, large perspective. If you look at the molecular level, how can this be achieved, right? So by creating insulation, it is intuitive, and this is what we have been taught, the typical wire with insulation, right? It, 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 increase, it decreases the resistance and therefore it allows the impulse to go faster, right? This is what we know. But if we think at the idea of the Hebbian concept of consolidation of synapses, if you think in order for cell C receiving impulses from A and B, if the stimuli arrive at the same time, these synaptic connections are going to be strengthened. But how do the two impulses arrive at the same point at the same time? This is where myelination of tracts can play a critical role. For instance, if you have one axon that's myelinated arriving faster and the other one that's not arriving at the same time, simply because some segments are not yet myelinated, you can see how myelinating those tracks will then allow the two input cells to reach the target cells at the same time and therefore the synaptic circuit can be consolidated. So one mechanism, just linking it to the concept of insulation, is this uh, capability of integrating the signals and allowing consolidation of specific impulses. The second possibility is that there has been a lot of work done, and I think that this for, for a psychiatry, for, for me it's very fascinating at, at least, the concept of oscillation. And uh, we all know about brain waves, right? I mean, how we, we discuss about the alpha, beta, the gamma, theta rhythms and how oscillations are due to synchronous activation of cell populations, right? And depending on the type of mechanism, we can discuss about, uh, you know, um, theta rhythms or gamma rhythms, depending on the number of spindles or, or, or the, the wave per second. What, the, what uh, a very good friend of mine actually at, uh, at Hunter College has been shown, her name is Katya Lichtig, 
is that uh, these uh, oscillations are critical in, uh, she, she works in animals, but Tracy Tiwari, she works with patients, with adolescents with anxiety. And, um, and what Katya has been able to show is that uh, if you take a mouse, the typical fear conditioning paradigm, right? The mouse learns that if you put in a specific cage, it gets shocked and learns how to avoid that specific, uh, um, what we call noxious or aversive stimulus, right? If then you present the mouse with the same situation at a given period of time, the mouse will show a fear response, right? Will freeze. And this is the basis also for post-traumatic stress disorder. This is what happens to us as well, right? But if now you present a mouse with a different type of tone that has not been associated with um, a scary um, outcome, the mouse will learn to discriminate, right? So we discriminate two different tones. If one tone is associated with the shock and the different tone with a different octave is not associated with the tone, the mouse will be able to discriminate. This is associated with a negative response. This is not associated with a negative response. And so how does the brain do that? How do you discriminate between aversive versus non-aversive stimulus? And one the regions of the brain are the same, but what uh, determines this discrimination are these oscillations, these oscillations that occur in the prefrontal cortex uh, that are followed by other oscillations in the amygdala. Now in anxiety, what happens is that you become afraid also of stimuli that normally are not scary, right? I mean, if you are faced by a bear you, and, and you are with, with a grizzly bear in front, you will be scared. It's not that you are anxious, you're just scared because you have an, an accurate assessment. But if you are at home and all in a sudden you feel scared of an immediate threat that's not there, that's critical because you are unable to discriminate a, a comforting surrounding from a threatening situation. So this problem of threat versus uh, um, stim stimulus recognition, it is really impacted in anxiety. And what we think, and this is one of the hypotheses we're testing now, is that myelination of specific circuits could be critical in this assessment by altering the patterns of oscillation. And so what now, <laughs> but now, so now if you take this concept, and this is where we are moving forward, and you move it back with what we were saying before, learning, juggling, et cetera. What uh, Tracy is, uh, is a neuropsychologist also at Hunter, and she has developed an app called Zen and uh, uh, that she's using on, adolescent, uh, on, on adolescents to handle anxiety. So now the kind of study that we're trying to do is we already, uh, Katia already tried in mice. It could show that uh, we could teach mice what we call safety learning. So we can teach an anxious mouse how to feel safe. And so, uh, and uh, Katia has- do that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> how do you teach a mouse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that it's, it's very interesting actually. And uh, now I can, it, since it's not published, I cannot tell you precisely. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, secret of the trade. <laughs> what I can tell you is this, which is quite, quite interesting, thinking of our life. What for a mouse feels safe is predictability. Mm. What for a mouse feels unsettling and develops this 
you know, generalized fear is the unpredictability. So in other words, if you give a stimulus and every time after five seconds is followed by a shock, the mouse learns, okay, if I wait five seconds, the shock has not arrived, pretty much I'm safe. But if you show a mouse that one time is after one second, you give the, the sound or whatever, the light, and then one time is after one minute, one second, one time is after two seconds, one mouse is up, you know, it becomes extremely hard for the mouse to feel safe at any point. Yeah. Then it becomes much harder. So the, this predictability, right? It becomes much harder to develop this. So we are using this concept to try. I, can, can I ask a question as, as well? This sounds like gambling and reward behavior as well. So not just the, the negative or averse uh, re reaction, but also the positive reinforced behavior as well. It sounds like there's a both sides of the coin. Is, is it the same Precisely. process? Okay. Precisely. So in other words, since they have this overactive response where they become afraid of everything, if we can develop myelin by teaching them by, you know, a new trick, basically, they are learning. Therefore, they are myelinating other pathway that perhaps will recreate this synchronization. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's, that's the overall idea. Now, we looked at apps that have an FDA approval. Is Zen one of the apps that has an FDA approval? Do we you did recall? It, we didn't see it. The one that we saw was Frispira, I think. Yeah, and Heads, Headspace was being um, uh, approved this year. Yeah. We think so. Is, is Zen an app that will have an FDA approval in the near future? Do you know? I don't know. I know that we're writing grants right now. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Very cool. Um, you've talked about a number of ways where we can think about not only using our understanding of myelination as a way to perhaps um, develop therapies that strengthen those myelinating pathways. Um, you've talked about uh, demyelination or myelination as being uh, necessary for normal development. How you, you sent me some research, some articles that were very fascinating about how the gut biome, microbiota biome, might affect myelination. Do you have some more time to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, this, this has been my big love for several years, actually. And I've always been interested in nutrition and diet and how does it impact? Is it true that food is medicine? And, uh, and, being, and working on multiple sclerosis, there are a lot of multiple sclerosis patients who have this question, can I do something for my disease? Does it make a difference, right? And I'm sure that also several mothers of autistic children have similar questions. Um, so one, the, the, the paper that I sent you was really um, inspired by um, work that we were doing in the lab noticing that some mice were really showing signs of depression and others did not, just simply by holding them or gavaging them with saline. Mm -hmm. So this was really surprising. And since we, had, we were working on this uh, multiple sclerosis related project, we noticed that if we were giving the antibiotic to these mice, we didn't see the difference in this depressive behavior. So it was totally serendipitous, right? Just we realized that, look at this, if we are give, the mice that are receiving the antibiotic do not seem to show this, this behavior. And this is what led us then to try to understand what's happening in, in these mice. And so um, at that time, there was another group, a friend of mine, Sarkis Masmanian at Caltech, who was working on autism. 
And uh, he also had detected that uh, mice that were, um, I mean, that, that basically if you take the microbiome of children with autism and transplanted in germ-free mice, you could induce an autistic-like behavior. And, uh, and when we were discussing, he, he said, you know, we are doing metabolomic studies in these mice. Why don't you also do metabolomic studies? And, and, and this is what we did. We did both microbiome and metabolomic studies in our mice. So he did it in mice, germ-free, inoculated with the stools of patients with, uh, with children with autism. We had done it in our study, taking the feces from the depressed mice and giving them to mice that were in, uh, uh, with antibiotic treatment for a prolonged period of time. And we could show that the fecal transplantation, just basically by gavaging uh, the stools from one mouse to, to the next, was capable of inducing several changes in the behavior that were related to changes in the, the, the myelin content. We were not expecting this at all. At the same time, we had taken the prefrontal cortex of these mice and sent for RNA sequencing to look at the transcriptome. And as the top category, we could detect myelin, like really literally myelin sheet as the top category of genes affected. And for us was a total surprise, right? So then how do you link? What was it between the feces that were in the stomach and how could it change the transcriptome made really no sense. And, uh, and that's when with the, we decided to do the metabolomic ourselves to try to see if this could lead to, to some changes. And we identified, and I have to tell you, this is now my major, uh, what I'm working now, what keeps me up, <laughs> is the fact that we could see an increase of picresol which is the same derivative that it's used, the cresol concentration is used in the urine of children on autism as diagnostic. Really? And, uh, yeah. And so, and so what Sarki showed is that if you take cresol and you inject it in mice, it's sufficient to induce an autistic-like phenotype. So we tried to put the cresol itself on uh, oligodendrocyte progenitor cells, and we could show in culture that it does prevent those cells from differentiating. Now, what's even more interesting is that since then, we continue to do a number of studies in patients with multiple sclerosis. And what we could find is that, uh, oh, importantly, and what we could find is also that we identify Cresol in the plasma and in the CSF. Now, importantly, our bodies cannot make Cresol without the bacteria. Mm -hmm. So in other words, what we have identified is that the metabolites that we detect in those pathology with a great myelin damage or less myelin are characterized by the presence of what we call these indole derivatives. And this is where, where this whole thing started, right? So together with the uh, paracresol, there, there is, you know, indoxyl sulfate, cresol sulfate, and kynurenin. And so all of them come from the tryptophan metabolism. And if we think all those amino acids, right, there are at least two class of families that one can detect inside the gut. Tryptophan that can generate then 5-hydroxytryptamine, so serotonin, 
and this, there has been a lot of discussion. Is there a second brain in the gut? So that uh, can you be happy if your gut is happy, etc. And uh, and you can basically go either into one of the two, right? Either you go towards serotonin, or if you do not go towards serotonin, you go towards kynurenic acid or quinolinic acid. And the presence of, of, so it's interesting because Valentina was mentioning last time about this difference, right? So it would be interesting. I do not know anything about schizophrenia, but it would be interesting to know, is there a difference then in the specific population in the microbiome that could be affecting these uh, this mechanisms? And could one think eventually of potential therapies that are associated with that? At the same time, I know that um, Valentina was, was, was many times was mentioning it. Some patients are taking 5-hydroxytryptamine as a supplement to feel better, right? And many people joke about that. Come on, it's, it's not going to work. How can it go into... But, but the relationship that there is between the gut and the brain may perhaps... I mean, one can even think that perhaps these indole derivatives might play a role in... Uh, in we, we do not understand, yes, how do they work? And what do they do? But they think it's a very exciting area of exploration that's worth investigating. Holy cow. So I, <laughs> I, I'm just stunned. So we actually did a podcast mm -hmm. on the gut-brain microbiota relationship with uh, a medical student. It would have been three or four months ago. And uh, Natalie and her uh, fiance, it was... Uh, about the 11th podcast in our series. And we, we talked about IL-6, IL-18. We talked, I think we mentioned Cresol, C-R-E-S-O-L, as one of these molecules that we think is causing problems. But at that point, we didn't have any idea that these molecules might be affecting the mRNA transcription in the brain. And, yeah. and to me, hearing you tie these parts together is, is absolutely phenomenal. I'm curious if you have um, some sort of intuition at this point, or even better data speaking to probiotics as a treatment mm -hmm. for, anti for depression. Mm -hmm. So I do not have, and that's the other thing that I want to mention, but there is a group that's really specializing on this. It's in Ireland. And, uh, and it's a group of Cryan, C-R-Y-A-N, Timothy Cryan. And I think they have published a, several, a lot on this. And they, and they are really working also, I think, with uh, Danon or to, to generate <laughs> a, biotic, a, a, a probiotic to put in a yogurt so that you can get a, a feel-good yogurt or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> FDA-approved yogurt. Next, next will be by Danon. Um, <laughs> But, you know, for me, what was exciting is that we had this um, study in, uh, in, in MS patient. And what we could see is that when we looked at patient that responded to therapy versus patient that did not respond to therapy, we could actually detect that the responders of a specific drug that was allowing, basically the most effective drug was the one that was depleting the microbiota of those cresol producing bacteria mm -hmm. so that we could detect decreased cresol concentration in the brain, in, in the cerebrospinal fluid and in the plasma. So there is something that really cresol is doing and we don't know yet what. I was so fascinated by that study. First of all, 
I, I just have to describe that study if I can for a moment. You had about 170 people with MS who had never had disease-modifying treatments. So uh, glantomere, I think, was one, and dimethyl fumarate. Yeah. And so, so these naive patients you brought in, and you got 90% of 168 people to send you fecal samples sandwiched between ice blocks. Mm -hmm. yes. First of all, to me, that's a miracle. I don't know how you <laughs> yeah. that off. That was just, just starting off, that was very impressive. Fecal sandwiches. No, patient, so, so this is interesting because patient really wanted to do that. So we did a lot of seminars for patients and patients were signing up, literally. I want to be part of this study. I want to be part of this study. We had to exclude a lot of patients because there are the microbiota. We cannot do studies after 65 or before 18. So we had these exclusion criteria. And there are a number of other exclusion criteria, right? So for instance, if you're in corticosteroids, if you have diseases. So mm. we had to exclude many people, many more people than what initially enrolled. Now, the second question that people had is... Can, 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 I, can I just add a little bit more about how both of these studies were so elegant. I, I just want my, <laughs> my students to hear yeah. how well thought out these studies were. Not only how impressive it was that you got these done, but, but after you had these, these patients send in their fecal, um, their fecal material, you ran all of these species through, if I understood right, an MA, mRNA read to identify which bacteria were present. And you had 8.5 million bacterial reads that you found in those samples. So, so again, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by how you, you did this. And then after you did that, you, you extrapolated genomic function from those mRNA and then looked at the overlapping changes in genomic function between dimethyl fumarate and glatomere, and you found 17 over, overlapping pathways, 15 of which were concordant. And in those 15 pathways, you identified some of these things that you're talking about. And, and I just think, I, I, as I read that, I, I just have to say, holy cow, I, we continue to just be impressed by you. So go, go ahead now with no, the second. But, but see, this is important because it is a collaborative study, right? I mean, I think that in 2020, I cannot do this study by myself. I didn't do the analysis of the bacteria. It is because I had Sergio, who is an expert, and, and there, are, you know, there are people who are experts in the microbiome. I, I'm happy to work with them, but I'm not uh, the person who works. I am a neuroscientist, right? <laughs> I think that, that what is nice is that we work as a team, and this is the strength of the team. So um, you should not be impressed by me, but by the strength of the team, because it's really important, right? <laughs> I, I am so impressed with how you lead your team then. <laughs> I'm, I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm, the, the way that you came to these great pathways for how you figured this out is so impressive to me. Now, I, I do want to jump back. You said, now this brings up the second thing. I totally interrupted to talk about how impressed I was with the study. What was it that you were going to bring up now? I hope you haven't lost that train of thought. <laughs> okay. I forgot what I was discussing. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say the implications of it, but I, I, I know that one of the implications was that with the EMS study, you were able to look at these overlapping pathways and think about. Oh, um, I know. 
how um, neurons might be affected. While you're, you're coming up with this, one of the things I wondered, we were taught that one of the common types of MS was relapsing remitting. I can't help but think if we have a gut biome that's changing, you might have relapse and then remit with each change of the gut biome. Has there been association with relapsing remitting MS and changes in gut biome? So um, there have been association no, in the sense that if every time you have a relapse, there is going to be a change. I don't think that, uh, okay, so this is what I want to tell you and, and now I remember. Okay, good. But if you look at the microbiome between me, you, Valentina, any of the people, right? Our microbiome is very different. Not only is very different, there are also fluctuations related on diet, right? I mean, mm -hmm. with vegan is one thing. If you are vegan and then you eat a burger, it's going to be completely different the following day, etc. So there is an inter-individual variability that, uh, that increases tremendously the noise. And so the signal to noise ratio is very, very hard. In contrast, you can have many different bacteria that can produce metabolite X. So you can have multiple combination in multiple people, but all those people might have metabolite X being elevated. Common final pathway. So that's exactly, what did you say, Vane? Common final pathway. Yes, and that's why we think that rather than looking at, uh, um, this is why now the field is shifting and uh, to look at metabolomics, and now with metabolomics, there are becoming, there are a number of ideas of what could be generating. So that this is where I'm thinking that maybe the future is not necessarily going to be a probiotic. So I'm, I, I, this is my prediction, but, but perhaps a metabolite, metabolic, metabolic intervention, so that it doesn't matter the specific class that you have, but rather you are going to shift the metabolic equilibrium. And so what you were saying about the relapsing remitting, the relapse itself has been really associated with, um, and, and we know that now, to, to an increase in immune activation. Okay. And that's quite, quite well now controlled, right? We have nowadays 17 therapies for MS, and it's relatively well controlled. What we cannot control, though, is the progression. No matter how long has been your, um, your course in relapsing remitting, eventually with age, you tend to accrue disability. And this we don't have a good handle on. So what we want to really understand is, is there a metabolic difference between secondary progressive patient versus relapsing remitting patient? Is there, and this is what I think I think there will be a paper coming soon out where the, the level of several of these metabolites may turn out to be very important. So this is quite interesting. You're hedging. I think you know more than, than a suspicion. <laughs> I think you have good inside information that you can't comment on, but we will not press that. <laughs> I, I do have another question as well. One of the things that uh, we talked about was retrograde transmission of the rabies virus. Is there anything in your research that speaks to some sort of retrograde activity where gut bacteria seems to have some travel up the neurons back to the brain? Or has it been mostly systemic uh, inflammatory and uh, um, metabolites like Cresol? 
So that was one of the, there was a, a student, a pre-med student who worked in the lab, Tricia, who was trying to, to do this, uh, this experiment together with Mark Gassias. And so she did, uh, um, you know, the vagectomy, you know, just to cut the vagal nerve to see if there was a difference. And uh, although we did not include in the study, there did not seem to be a direct uh, um, a, a difference between the animals with vagectomy and those without it. So that's for sure, it's one of the mechanisms that has been proposed, but in our own experiment, we did not see that this is uh, critical, at least for the myelin phenotype. Wow. I, okay, I thought I was going to throw you a tough question there, and it's so, <laughs> so easy for you. We, we are having so much fun. I, I probably have a, another question or two. We know that your time is very important, and so what I'm going to do is see if any of the three of you have any questions um, for Dr. Mom, also known as Dr. Kasacha. Mm -hmm. Gio? I'm pretty stunned. Um, pretty fascinating. It's just such a, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you done any research with, uh, with models of schizophrenia and the, and the biome, the gut biome? No, no, no. I have to stay focused. So I, I am. <laughs> no, I know, I know. That would be going down a different uh, rabbit hole. But mouse maybe hole, you, mouse hole, let's say mouse hole, <laughs> not rabbit hole. You can do it, right? I mean, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, she just gave that right back to you. She, she said, become an MD, PhD. <laughs> I, oh, my goodness. And Valentina. Oh, no, I, I'm good. <laughs> what else? We, we don't want to take up time that you don't have. We know that you have some other pressing issues today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us as, as um, students of medicine that will help us be better physicians? We're, we're open to any suggestion and any advice, whether it relates to myelination or anything else that you would add. Do you know what I've seen in my own personal experience, right? I think that as physicians, we are trained to believe what is and what is not. As a scientist, we are trained to doubt and demonstrate, right? Uh -huh. And so I think that um, if you always keep an open mind and uh, you question the knowledge that's being provided, I think perhaps you, we could all be better people and better doctors because it allows for growth, right? And uh, alternative explanation. I always say, if you think that you have an explanation, how many more there could be, right? I mean, that's the basis if you think for differential diagnosis, but many times, right? You, you, you end up at the end to believe that you have the truth. And if you keep on questioning, perhaps there are new possibility or new ideas that can come to the mind, right? Yes. What, what great advice. And, and can I say that it's something that I do my best here to try and live. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, how many times have I told you as students, I think it's this, but I've been wrong so many times before. Let's look it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's only part yeah. of the exploration of 
kind of the stuff that we're supposed to know, that's not even getting into the science the way that you do. And, and something um, I, I once had an attending tell me, he said, you're not a bad student. You'd probably be okay at either research or at being a physician with people. Don't try both. You don't have that skill. It sounds like you do both. Do you have a clinic as well? No, no, no. I decided that to leave a long time ago and to leave the clinic. It's been, uh, honestly, for me, uh, I'm sad that I did that. But, uh, and I know that people successfully can do either one, uh, can, can do both. I cannot do both, just, but, but I think it's my own limitation. I wish I would have kept a little of a clinical practice at least. But my feeling is it's incredibly difficult to do both. I, I, I'm impressed that you were able to do that for any period of time. That's, no, but that's... I'm not doing it, you know. <laughs> I, know, you're, I, know <laughs> I know you're not now, but I, I think we, you have a new adoration club. There, you have uh, three medical students, one that was already in the club. I <laughs> she has no choice. And, and you now have a psychiatrist in the middle of nowhere, Utah, that just absolutely adores what you have presented. We love your voice. We love the way you taught us. I think what we'll do is, knowing that you need to go, we'll go ahead and stop this podcast here and maybe do a separate second one with kind of the back half of the content that we intended. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sorry for talking so much, actually. No, no. this is what we wanted. This is exactly what we hoped for. Okay. Please okay. have a wonderful afternoon. And a, a ritual that we have when we end this is we say team out. So if you wouldn't mind joining us, thanks for a wonderful podcast and team out. Team, team out. out. Team out. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you again. Ciao. Bye bye. Bye. -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.